Hi, everyone. This is Izzy, host of the podcast Sounding Out with Izzy. If you like what you're hearing and would like to read or hear more of me, you should check out my blog site where I review new music, interview up-and-coming and emerging artists, and curate playlists based on what new music is currently fitting my mood. All of that and more can be found on my website, agirls2soundsense.com. That's agirls2soundsense.com, girl spelled with three R's and no I. And if this is your first time hearing and you like what you're hearing, then I implore you to give the show a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, as that really helps more people discover the podcast and help me get the word out there. Now on with the episode. Hello, and welcome to Sounding Out with Izzy. The podcast where we have conversations with musicians, music producers, publicists, live promoters, zine makers, journalists, and more about their experiences working in the music industry as women, non-binary, and queer people. I'm your host, Isabel Corp, the founder of the Queer Femme music-based blog and YouTube channel, A Girl's Two Sound Sense. Well, folks, we've reached a sixth season over here at Sounding Out with Izzy HQ. I absolutely love doing this show, and I'm really happy that you all love listening so much. Today's gonna be a bit different. I am not joined by a guest for this episode, but fear not, because it is still an exciting episode regardless. Today is a standalone episode where I review a compelling music documentary. Today, I review the Amazon Prime documentary on Cream Magazine, presented by the Coda Collection. I discuss parts of the film that I enjoyed, parts that I felt could have been improved, and also go deep into the origins, collapse, and eventual return of Cream magazine and why its legacy is so important and instrumental to music history. And without further ado, let's get right into this episode. Hi everyone, welcome back to Sounding Out with Izzy. And our first episode of season six. I hope you all had a wonderful and relaxing Labor Day weekend. I still cannot believe we're coming up on 70 episodes of the podcast now. It's been just over two years that I've been doing this show and... I always enjoy seeing your wonderful reviews and ratings come in. It always makes my day. Today, we are going to be reviewing the wonderful Amazon Prime documentary on Cream Magazine, which I was offered to review by the lovely, wonderful people over at the Coda Collection. For those of you who are unaware, the Coda Collection is an Amazon music channel that lets you stream iconic music documentaries, concert films, and rare footage that provides intimate and in-depth looks into legendary artists like Jimi Hendrix, John Lennon, 
Foo Fighters, Aretha Franklin, Pearl Jam, The Rolling Stones, and so much more. They are currently promoting a variety of music documentaries, and they sent me a link to the documentary they recently made on Cream Magazine, which was the most enticing pick for me because of my deep interest and affinity for what Cream Magazine does and stands for. For those of you who aren't aware of what Cream Magazine is, I will provide a brief background. But before we get further into this episode, I just want to provide a content warning. This episode does contain heavy spoilers for this film and also discusses very serious topics, including self-harm, addiction, and suicide. So if you are very sensitive to these aforementioned topics, I would advise you proceed with caution going into this episode. If you need to take breaks, that is totally understandable. So for a background on Cream Magazine, for those of you who don't know what Cream Magazine is, Cream Magazine was a widely successful magazine on rock and roll that was very irreverent and silly. It started in 1969, and from the beginning, their tagline was America's only rock and roll magazine. The magazine was founded by head publisher Barry Kramer and founding editor Tony Ray in Detroit, Michigan. And the magazine infamously got its name from the band Cream, who Tony Ray was a big fan of at the time. And apparently, the choice in naming it after a famous rock band in particular was intended to be a giant middle finger to Rolling Stone magazine, which started just a year before Cream and took its name from the Rolling Stones. And I think understanding this opposition to Rolling Stone magazine is actually quite foundational to understanding Cream, because Rolling Stone magazine is widely understood to be a music publication, but it never really wanted to be a music publication. Rolling Stone kind of just wanted to be a culture magazine. I know that the head publisher at Rolling Stone, Jan Wenner, was born into wealth and made it pretty clear that his MO was to stay assimilating into high society. He wanted to frolic among the stars and become their friends. And he also famously fired... Lester Bangs from Rolling Stone magazine because Bangs didn't kiss up to the rock stars enough in his record reviews, which is going to be a pretty crucial uh, point of discussion when it comes to what Cream was intended to do, which was take celebrities down to the level of how you would treat any other ordinary human person, especially if you are not the biggest fan of that person. Why would you give them any special treatment just because they are a celebrity? A major point of discussion that we still have amongst stan culture and idol worship in the online and digital hellscape we currently navigate today. So Cream was the polar opposite of Rolling Stone because from the beginning it it was basically birthed out of opposition. We've all heard the stories of 
like, you know, Lester Bangs famously telling a young, impressionable Cameron Crowe to never make friends with the artist for this exact reason. Cream's mission statement from the jump was to treat rock stars exactly how you would treat anybody else. It was about punching up. It was about refusing to cater to the star's whims and egos and refusing to twist yourself into a pretzel, essentially, just to appease a celebrity. To lightly paraphrase a quote from Niagara, Detroit, from Destroy All Monsters, Cream was going to tell you the truth, and they were going to be funny about it. And even if they weren't telling you the truth, they were still funny about it. Cream was very unserious. They would run headlines poking fun at rock stars like The Who Punch Out, Pete Townsend as Sparring Partner, or Blondie Plucks Her Legs. Like, there was this weird, to quote Patrick Carney of the Black Keys, like, Cream had a weird balance of playing up the rock star image and the fucked up hedonism, and then tearing it the fuck down. And now for a little bit of background on the film... This documentary on Cream was directed by Scott Crawford and produced by Jan Uhelski and, and Susan Whittle. The film was also notably executive produced by J.J. Kramer and Bonnie Kramer, the wife and son of Barry Kramer, the late co-founder and head publisher at Cream. So I'll start with a lot of the stuff that I really liked about the movie. This movie obviously has all its obligatory portions of rock stars appearing as talking heads, which honestly was the least interesting or compelling part of the film to me. But what I really loved was the fact that it was in the right hands. It was produced by the people who were actually there. Jan Uhelski was a staff writer and co-founder and also one of the first women to work in rock journalism. Whittle was a staff writer and editor at Cream as well, and J.J. Kramer is Barry Kramer's son. And in Barry Kramer's will, he actually left Cream to J.J., and J.J. still has a hand in the creative direction and output on this current online relaunch of Cream that is now up online and in print today. The film opens with some pretty iconic footage of Barry Kramer interviewing the full Cream staff, like the first of the full Cream staff at the Cream headquarters at 3729 Cass Avenue in Detroit. And that's another thing I really liked was the Cass Avenue space. I thought it was a really excellent setup because this quote-unquote headquarters was essentially as far from a professional office as one could possibly get. It was in a pretty dangerous neighborhood. There were mattresses on the floor. There were scattered bottles of booze everywhere. There were just stacks of clutter and supplies all over the place. And that almost made it charming, too. So in the opening of the film, we see Barry Kramer in this pigsty of an office... And he's interviewing his staff members, most of whom are, like, lounging on the floor. <laughs> and he asks each of them what they do. And without skipping a beat, the first words out of the first person's mouth are, I sell dope downstairs. <laughs> I thought that was such a brilliant way to open the film because five seconds into the movie, you just immediately know from the jump what the tone of this film and this story is going to be. 
it's no different from the magazine itself. It's about taking the piss. It's about not taking music too seriously, and it's about rejecting objectivity in favor of engaging with how you actually feel while also being funny about it, which are the exact principles that Cream was founded on. I thought the first enticing moment of the movie for me was the song choice for the opening credit sequence. It was 1969 by the Stooges, a song that is not only emblematic of like the grit and grime that Cream Magazine rose out of, but also indicative of the beginning of everything. Not just the beginning of the film, but also the beginning of the magazine. 1969 was the year the magazine was founded. The lyrics to 1969 reflect a disillusionment and apathy that came with leaving the sunny platitudes of the 60s behind. It's another year for me and you. Another year with nothing to do. The Stooges are also from Michigan, Cream's home base. So this was just perfect. There, there was no other song option. It had to open with this song, and only this song. I loved how they framed the musical history of Detroit, especially from the working class angle of being entrenched in the Midwest. There's an amazing quote in the film from Cream's editor-in-chief, Dave Marsh, where he says, If you live in the Midwest, the realities of the situation will force you to understand very quickly. It's not all laid back and peace and love and good vibes and groovy. It's hard work, it's discipline, it's making something out of the ugliest part of the universe. Another thing to note about Dave Marsh, the editor-in-chief, was that he was very much like Barry Kramer, also a staunch moralist and kind of a loose cannon, as most of the men at this magazine notably were. He was unabashedly political and very adamant about the fact that you cannot separate music from politics because to separate the music from the politics is to separate it from its context entirely, removing all its meaning and purpose. I think the context of being working class in Detroit really fed the creative energy in Detroit, especially in the music world, because it was like bottled dynamite. Detroit gave us some of the biggest players in Motown, like the Supremes, Smokey Robinson, Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder, and it gave us P-Funk, George Clinton, anybody? It gave us Alice Cooper, the MC5 and the Stooges. I mean, I could go on and on. The White Stripes are from Detroit. It was a boundary-breaking city when it came to art, and so... It makes perfect sense that such a subversive and free-deviating magazine like Cream would also find its roots in Motor City. I really loved the story about the iconic Boy Howdy logo, which was essentially a funny little irreverent logo that Cream made to market. Like, it was a fake beer logo, and it pretty much became synonymous with Cream, so it just became the magazine's mascot, basically. The Boy Howdy logo was designed by underground cartoonist Robert Crumb, who was seeking medical treatment at the time, and Cream promised to provide the funds for him to see a doctor if he designed something for the magazine, and that gave us Boy Howdy. I thought that story was a really cool and interesting anecdote, and I hope that Crumb was able to see that doctor and get his whole situation sorted out. I would have been nice to have an update on that story. Another thing I 
really enjoyed was the editing by Patrick Wright. The graphics were awesome. The animated recreation of famous brawls or sparring episodes between David Marsh and Barry Kramer or Barry Kramer and Lester Bangs. And these retellings of iconic moments like Lester Bangs going on stage to perform a review and smashing a typewriter. I thought those little animations were really brilliant. I really enjoyed them. I loved absolutely everything that came out of Dave Marsh's mouth in the movie. There was one really memorable part of the film where Jan Uhelski told the story of how Dave got hired at Cream. Uhelski claimed that Dave had a radio show at WDET, Wayne State University, and that he got fired for playing Can't Explain by The Who 23 times in a row. And almost immediately after Uhelski relays this anecdote, Marsh immediately just shuts that down and goes, what the fuck are you talking about? That never happened. And Uhelski was like, well, oh, well, that's what Barry told me. And he's like, yeah, because that's what Barry did. He was a compulsive liar who made shit up all the time. I thought that a scene like that where one of them directly disputes the accuracy of a memory was so brilliantly done because it really showed how even after all these years, like the tension and the dysfunctional relationships between this group of oddballs just hasn't changed a bit. It's the same as it always was. Another incredibly compelling part of the film involving Dave Marsh was the story that he told about feeling a sense of duty to oppose the stuffiness in society. And, you know, if it meant that he bled a little for it, then it was a sacrifice that he was willing to make because he knew that there were kids out there who were going to read his work and be freed by it. After this really powerful statement by Marsh, we immediately get a story from R.E.M.'s Michael Stipe. He starts telling his own story of how he grew up as a lonely, troubled, queer teen living near a military base in Georgia, where he was in detention at school, and he felt liberated when he first saw Alice Cooper in the pages of Cream. The scene that I'm referring to is where he talks about seeing Alice Cooper on the cover. He was with his grandmother at the time, and his grandmother said, He's gonna burn in hell. And then he was immediately like, I want to know all about Alice Cooper. <laughs> I also really loved the clear focus on all of the pioneering women involved in Cream from the beginning, like Jan Uhelski, like Robbie Krueger, like Susan Whittle, Connie Kramer, Lisa Robinson, Penny Valentine. Like I could go on and on and on. I think what made Cream such an enlightened place to work for women at the time was the fact that it didn't really require professional credentials. It wasn't a, like, you know, how do you get a job without job experience kind of situation. Like, anybody could do it. And I thought that was what made the magazine so brilliant. And Ann Powers has a really great quote in the movie about women in the history of rock and roll needing to be subversive. And yeah, they may have had to make decisions at the time that felt like a compromise, but their mere presence and voices really changed the game. I also really loved, like, I don't know, the segment about rock stars posing next to their cars. I thought it was just such 
an incredible commentary on stardom and ego. There's one quote where they say, like, there's nothing more revealing about a superstar than when they're standing next to their car. And I really loved so many of the snapshots of stars in their cars. I found it hilarious and pretty iconic. Those were a lot of things that I really loved about the film. So now on to things that I thought could have been improved. I'll just start off the bat. Ted Nugent. Why was he there? I'm sorry, but I thought we went over this already. The mere suggestion that Ted Nugent has a place anywhere other than exiled from civilization is ludicrous to me. I don't care that he's from Detroit. I don't care. Like, what would it have taken away from the film by just not platforming him? Nothing. He added nothing. So what's the point in having him there in the first place? He's a fucking vile human being. There is no excuse for him being platformed in modern day whatsoever. Would have taken nothing away from the story if they just didn't bother platforming him, like I said earlier. And it just speaks volumes to me that they were so gung-ho about platforming Ted Nugent in this film because, well, he's from Detroit and it matters to the story, but they wouldn't even bother getting any musicians of color from Detroit to go on the record talking about their stories. Could they not have given fucking George Clinton a phone call? Smokey Robinson still around? Stevie Wonder? In perfectly good condition? I would argue that the film certainly did lose a lot of potential and seriously missed an opportunity by refusing to platform any of these people's voices. And that segues into another big bone of contention I have with this film is that it's very white. The only person of color I saw in the entire film was Scott Sterling. Love you, Scott Sterling. Shout out. Come on the podcast. Anyway, this was made even more glaringly obvious when they had that really awkward racial tension segment just sort of like shoehorned into maybe two minutes of the film and so inconsiderately skimmed over it. It was just like, oh, we had a harsh reality hit about police brutality and the Detroit race riots and MLK and JFK getting assassinated. And then I guess like with all that struggle, we just dove into music all deeper and it's just so ridiculous. And I'm not saying this to suggest that they didn't care about these issues, but it rings pretty hollow when it only lasts for two minutes and it's not expanded upon and you only interviewed one person of color in the entire film. Like, if you're gonna go there, then go there. Why even include it if you weren't even gonna expand upon it in any substantial way? You know what I mean? I also didn't get why Chad Smith from the Red Hot Chili Peppers was the most prominently featured talking head in this film. Like, was there nobody else they could call? Chad Smith? Chickenfoot? Chad Smith? I'm not saying that he wasn't qualified to talk about this, and I don't have anything against the guy, but, like, I find it a little peculiar that he got the most airtime here. I thought that was kind of odd. Another point in the movie that I wanted to touch on was the tragedies of Lester Bangs and Barry Kramer. 
Lester Bangs is an interesting figure to me because so much of his aim as a writer and a critic was to drive a wedge between himself and what was popular. He was the self-proclaimed president of the Stooges fan club 50-something years ago, and I, like, imagine he's probably turning in his grave right now when he sees Iggy Pop basically debasing himself in order to appeal to mainstream younger pop listeners and, like, licensing lust for life to cruise commercials. Bangs wasn't above striking below the belt either. He would often personally attack rock stars for their reckless and empty, lavish lifestyles and also take every opportunity that he could to basically label them as pathetic human cliches. Yet Lester Bangs was the embodiment of that lifestyle. He was a rock star. He had major blowouts in hotel rooms that lasted for three days where they smashed TVs. He even died of an accidental overdose. And I'm not sure if that's some kind of tragic poetic irony. The fact that the rock star cliches that he opposed so savagely The one thing he spent his entire career railing against was ultimately the way that he went out. I'll say this too, and I know this is going to be a very hot take and a very unpopular opinion, but I never really cared for Lester Bangs. I can recognize why his work and his writing was important, but I didn't find it profound. And while I can still recognize that his work was incredibly influential to many journalists... And that it's important that he took a really firm stance on refusing to hold celebrities to a different standard just because they're celebrities. I just don't find his work particularly memorable. It just reads as another thing that I would read from some rando today on Reddit trying to be edgy, you know? So I felt personally vindicated when Connie Kramer did her whole commentary and reflections on Lester Bang's work and her impressions of him as a person and um, closed it out with, what can I say? I'm not a big fan. (laughs) You and me both, Connie. You and me both. That is certainly something we can agree on. Again, this is not a dunk on Lester Bangs. I don't have a personal vendetta against the guy. I can recognize why he was so influential, but I personally don't connect with his writing. I thought that the story towards the end of the film about Barry Kramer's declining health and ultimate demise felt like that was sort of inevitably where the story was headed especially the way they framed him as a figure in the film. He was clearly not a nice person. He was a terrible boss. He had no social graces. I think the only thing that kept people around him for however many years was his charisma, but even charisma can only take your relationship so far. And that's when the film starts to broach his traumatic experiences as a child He watched his father die when he was four years old, something that nobody of any age would take well, understandably, let alone at four years old. It definitely doesn't excuse his behavior for the remainder of his life, but it certainly explains a lot. He'd driven everybody away with his behavior at that point. Lester Bangs left, Dave Marsh left, his wife left him, and eventually he had nobody. And that's on him. That's nobody's fault but his own. He was already to blame for what 
ultimately would lead to Cream's demise. Connie Kramer explains in the film that for the remaining 10 years of the magazine up till it collapsed, they were so deep in debt because their formula for circulation and distribution was so outdated and it wouldn't have been that difficult of a fix. But Barry just wouldn't do it. And I think that's another great segue into who I felt was the most compelling figure in the entire film. And that was Connie Kramer. I wanted to hear more from her. I want to hear more about her story that doesn't just involve being second fiddle to Barry. Because her story is essentially a pretty incredible and compelling survivor story. She touches on going to rehab and mustering up the courage to leave her abusive spouse and shelter her son from the terror as much as she possibly could, which takes an unreal amount of strength and courage. And on top of that, she was basically like the brains behind the brains. Like, she was the real driving force behind what made Cream so successful. I would love to hear more of Connie Kramer's story. I would love her to write a memoir. I want all the sordid details. I want to hear about all the entertaining run-ins with celebrities. I want to hear more about the aftermath of how she handled her divorce, the demise of Cream, and what her life was like in the aftermath. And speaking of pioneering women in this story, another great figure that really compelled me was Susan Whittle, one of the former managing editors at Cream, who wrote an excellent piece that you can read on the relaunched Cream website about how she kept the editorial spark at the magazine alive after the departure of Lester Bangs, David Marsh, and Jan Uhelski. I'll link that piece in the show notes because it's absolutely worth your time, but I just want to recite a brief quote from that piece that I really loved. Many who have seen the recent Cream documentary remark upon the darkness that seems to descend after Lester leaves and Barry Kramer's life, and then Connie's go into a downward spiral. But it wasn't dark in our editorial offices. We had the best jobs in music journalism. We were going on the road with acts who often became friends and writing what we wanted with little intervention. And so, to bring it to a conclusion, on the whole, I found this documentary to be pretty enjoyable in spite of the places where I felt like it could have been improved. At this point, there's no excuse to not include people of color in your stories or at least consult them behind the scenes, which I don't feel like anybody did. I could be wrong, so if anybody has evidence that proves otherwise, please do bring it to my attention. This was a big point of contention in the film for me, and I would love to be proven wrong about it. But that doesn't negate the fact that on screen... It was severely lacking in diversifying the stories that they were willing to tell, and I don't think that they made the effort that they should have. And as many of you, but I thought the film was pretty enjoyable. It's a very compelling story. It's a very sad story, but it's also a very triumphant and liberating story. So if you haven't seen the film, I implore you to watch it. It's available on Amazon Prime. 
Thank you once again to the Coda Collection for hooking me up. As many of you might already know, last year Cream was relaunched as both a print magazine and a digital archive where you can not only read new material in both print and online, but you can also access every back issue of the magazine throughout history on the website. I will continue to stress that on the whole, the return of Cream is a good thing. In a landscape where music journalism seems to feel less like criticism and more like kissing up to stars in order to gain access, we are desperate for the type of journalism that is not only willing to rag on other people a la Lester Bangs, but take celebrities down to our level and also be funny while doing it. I think it'll also provide really great opportunities for aspiring music writers who might feel insecure about pitching to publications or pursuing other opportunities because of a lack of credentials. You don't need credentials or a lengthy resume to write for Cream. Their mission statement remains the same as it always was and is still listed on their website to this day. Quote, Nobody who writes for this rag's got anything you don't have, unquote. And I really hope that young writers really take that to heart. It is for all these reasons that I am all for this triumphant relaunch of Cream. Cream is risen, baby. Long live boy howdy. Thank you all so much for listening to Sounding Out with Izzy, and if you're interested in checking out this documentary, then I implore you to check out more titles from the Coda Collection. Remember to subscribe and sign up for the mailing list on my YouTube channel and written blog, both under the name A Girl's Two Sound Sense. Give the podcast a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening, and I will catch you in the next episode of Sounding Out with Izzy. Mm-hmm.